0: Standing and turn with me in John's Gospel, the 16th chapter. I'm taking up the reading of God's Word, John 16 and verse 16. Let us hear the Word of our God. A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, Therefore, what is this he says, a little while? We do not know what he is saying. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he asked, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman... When she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. Amen. Blessed be God for his unfailing and abiding word let us pray together oh lord our god we do look to you as children to a father as a mother a child to his mother father we look to you the god of all and our god our great god who is ever faithful we come lord to continue in our worship we come to yield ourselves unto you to submit unto your word and Father, as you've appointed the preaching of the word we ask that you would bless it with a demonstration of the spirit's power that all glory and honor would be unto Christ, the living word, and our king. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Why do bad things happen to good people? Indeed, that this true. I put good in quotes because ultimately there is no one good but God, as Jesus told the inquiring Pharisee. But indeed, bad things do happen. There are diseases, plagues, pestilence, deformities, abnormalities, droughts, natural disasters, all of which make life more difficult and ultimately result in death. The word, is God, the word of God is honest about these realities. In this world, you'll have trials. James says, count it all joy, brothers, when you fall into various trials. False Religious leaders will throw out you out of the congregation, Jesus has told them. The world will persecute you, even put you unto death. Jesus is not painting a picture of pleasantries and rose gardens and easy life for those who follow him. The problem of evil is a matter that unbelieving skeptics like to raise. But it's not a problem without explanation. Adam's sin which resulted in the justice of God coming down upon him and all his children. We live under the curse of God, as God promised to Adam. If you ate the forbidden fruit in that day, you will surely die. So the answer to the problem of evil is the justice of God and the rebellion of man. And thus it is true today that so many of the evils that we experience in our life today are a compounding of the disobedience against God. There is suffering and affliction ultimately because of sin. The story doesn't end there, though. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He sent his son into the world so that sinners who turn to him and believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The men gathered in the upper room that night have spent three years following Jesus. They've been with him almost continuously. They've been with God's only begotten son. They've been with the God-man one unique out of all of creation and of all of time, this one, God come in the flesh, begotten of a woman, taking our humanity to himself, dwelling amongst men, serving, ministering, teaching, and caring. And as John will write in his first epistle, for these 12, they have seen him, they have heard him, they have looked upon him with their eyes, they have handled him with their hands. But now Jesus is going away. In a little while they will not see him, he says, and this will bring them great sorrow. His departure is not without a purpose, though. Even the very announcement that he is going causes them confusion. They don't understand it, as we see here. But it was necessary for Jesus to go away in order to defeat the enemy of mankind, Satan, the great father of lies, the murderer of men. It was necessary for Jesus to go away in order for him to defeat sin, death, and the grave. Jesus will not leave his friends without hope, though. Even here, there's the promise. In this text, we hear Jesus preparing his beloved disciples for what is about to come. In this text, and in the broader text of the Upper Room Discourse, as Thomas Goodwin puts it, we have a window into Christ's heart. These chapters that we have covered, we've seen how Christ cares for his church as he cares for these men. We see his tenderness. We see his willingness to be Direct and frank and honest with him about these matters. But he has also been filled with promise. He's going away, but he's going to prepare a place for them, and from there he will come again. And even in his going away, he will send the comforter, the helper, the paraclete. We're going to look at this passage in three main headings. Jesus will be gone for a little while. Jesus explains his saying, this saying, and Jesus' departure will result in victory. In great joy, we'll conclude then with some application. So we begin with, Jesus will be gone for a little while, verses 16 through 18. In verse 16, it serves to close off what teach, the teaching that Jesus has been doing about the Holy Spirit. That's what has been covered. He's providing comfort in this teaching, that this one will come to them, and then abruptly, it is. Jesus is talking about going away again. And they have no idea what's going to unfold in the next few hours. I think sometimes we lose sight of that. We have the Gospels. We've read the gospel, We're familiar with how things unfold for them. They're walking as though blind. They don't know what the next few minutes say. You know, Jesus is, has been speaking of things unimaginable for them. But he's not been um, deceptive. He's not withholding the realities of what to come. He's told them, He's going away. If we turn back to chapter 14 and and verse 1, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then later on in verse 19, a little while longer. And the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you will live also. And then in verse 25, again, he he declares, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the, Holy, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. So there's these very direct statements that he's going away. And there's no doubt that the disciples... They don't understand it. They misunderstand it. They're confused. And then in verse 28 of this same chapter, we find Jesus saying, But you have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. Sounds like echoes of what we just read or that's what's being uh, again revisited. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Now it may be that he's continuing to speak to them as they gather up. He may be speaking in the remainder of this chapter as they walk along the way. The scripture's not clear. But the events are happening fast. Things are unfolding quickly. And these disciples, the 11 that remain with him, they're in the middle of it all. It's it's unknown to them. They're confused. John records that the disciples, they did not understand. They were confused. They were bewildered. In verse 17, he, he puts it plainly. They ask, what is this that he says to us? And John draws attention to the depth and the degree of their confusion. In verse 18, he makes it clear that it's the phrase, a little wild. He says, They're talking amongst themselves. What is this that he says a little while? That seems to be the thing that's most confusing to them. What is he he talking about? But indeed, the whole of it is a confusion to them. They have many misunderstandings, even as they have their preconceptions. So they did not understand. Let's consider this. No one ever spoke so plainly as Jesus there's never been a better communicator to walk amongst men we struggle to communicate um, we realize as married couples right that's constantly something we're working on and addressing need a good friendship that's a reality the complications of uh, communications but here jesus the best communicator ever that his disciples they don't understand they did not get their master's meeting. Now, remember, these men are used to hearing Jesus. They've heard him many times. But uh, just this morning in my scripture reading, it was in Matthew 13 where you have the kingdom parables. And after he gives them the parable of the sower, they say, speak to him privately, the Lord. Why do you speak to them in parables? He said, well, it's not given to them to understand these things. It's given to you. But even then, they had to say, well, Lord, explain it to us. Jesus speaks of things that are higher, things that are spiritual, things that men do not understand, they cannot figure out on their own. So just consider this, Christian, just a a brief aside, a brief application. Do not be surprised when you don't understand Jesus. When you're reading the scriptures, if there are things that you don't understand, don't be surprised. What you should do is, as you begin to read, pray that the Holy Spirit, who inspired these scriptures, would instruct you. They would give you understanding. They would open your eyes, and then persevere, keep studying, go to those who are wiser, perhaps solid commentators or your elders. Go and seek them, children. Your parents seek how to understand a text that you don't understand. What's interesting in this passage that we're considering, particularly this matter of a little while, the commentators are confused. And I'm not talking about liberal or broad evangelicals. I'm talking about solid Reformed commentators. They're confused. ...about what Jesus is talking about. They're not all over the place. Basically, they come down to two matters. This phrase, a little while, these is three words that cause the disciples' confusion. They also cause the commentators' confusion. They can't agree on him. But there's two main conclusions. One, the little while, is when Jesus is away from them during his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, leading then to his resurrection... There are others who take a little while to speak of Jesus after he ascends to the Father, as he ascends to heaven, that we're still in the little while. And in a little while, he'll be coming back again. They conclude, well, that's the little while. And there's a third meeting, not as popular as the other, but Jesus has both in view. As we move ahead, you'll see where I come down on that issue. Sinclair Ferguson rightly explains the going to the Father, when Jesus speaks of going to the Father, that's shorthand. Even as when he speaks of my hour, it's shorthand, going to the Father, of his passion, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and leading to his ascension. But let us not forget, when Jesus says going to the Father, remember after the resurrection, he's in the garden, and the women have come to him, and it's Mary who is prostrate before him, worshiping, clinging to his feet, and he says, essentially don't hold on to me for i have yet to ascend to my father there's there's something that happens between that time and the time when jesus appears to the disciples it's it's kind of veiled but it seems that jesus having completed his sacrifice ascends to the father making the sacrifice going to the Father in his work of the sacrifice as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it is necessary that his blood be sprinkled on the mercy seat that is in heaven. And as our high priest, he is the one who had done that. And so if we consider that in other contexts in Scripture, when Jesus says, because I go to the Father a little while, it brings us back to the first understanding. But before we go into that in the second point, We need to understand that one of the biggest challenges for these men in the upper room, these men who have been with Jesus, they're stuck in a paradigm. Children, a paradigm is is a way of understanding a situation that it's as though you're boxed in, that everything you know about it is contained within the boundaries of the box, and it's not possible that anything outside of the box could be true. And that's how these, these disciples, they, they're sure that they know certain things about the Messiah, what the Messiah would do as he comes. And we've seen that as we've gone through John's gospel, that they had an expectation that the Messiah would come as a mighty king to conquer and defeat the Romans, to drive them from the land. They also had an expectation that David's greater son who had been promised would come and reestablish the throne of David with its majesty and its might and its prosperity there in that land that dwelt on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean that its boundaries would be reestablished that they'd been under David or even beyond in the times of Solomon they did not understand that the son of God had come to do something far greater and let us not think somehow we're superior to them because we, too, have our paradigms. We not, would not understand the work of Jesus Christ if it were not for the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit who inspired the Scriptures to work in us, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart of understanding. It is because God revealed. And that is what Jesus has told these men, that the Holy Spirit going to instruct them. He's going to call the things to the mind, that they're going to be the ones who, through the Holy Spirit, they're given the Scriptures, as we considered two weeks ago. What they don't understand is that Jesus is God's son. He's come to undo what the first Adam has done. You see, every man's need, mankind's greatest need, indeed for every woman, man, woman, boy, and girl, is spiritual. For all of Adam's sin, I mean all of Adam's children are dead in sin, bound in sin, dead in trespasses and sin, and we need help to escape. Turn with me to Romans 5. We were here, I'm not even getting the guess, months ago, a couple years ago. I can't remember exactly what time it was, but we were here in Romans, in Romans 5. Pick up in verse 14. For Paul, an apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, explains these things to the church now down through the ages. In verse 14, Paul writes, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. There's the problem. Death even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Adam was a type of Christ. Adam was pointing to Christ, not in his flaws, not as in imperfections, but as the one who represented all humanity. He points to the one who is to come. Paul continues on. He explains it. But the free gift is not like the offense. Adam had the offense. The free gift comes through Christ. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace in the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from the many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reign through the one, much more those who received abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as one man's disobedience made many... Many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many were made righteous. See so you hear this, Paul says, Adam's a type. He points to Christ. Each represents a people. Adam's our f- a federal head. He's all mankind's federal head. Everyone is represented by him, thus we confess that in him we all sinned and fell with him in that first transgression. But then comes Christ, the second Adam. The last said, him, he comes also representing the people, those whom the Father had given to him before the foundation of the world. And he goes to the cross, and through his act, as Paul speaks of it, he's speaking of the, the complex and the, the complete cluster of what took place at the cross. Christ acted on the behalf of his people to secure for them salvation, to redeem a sinful people unto God by his completed work. And this is what is lost on the living men in the upper room. Indeed, is what was lost in the nation of Israel. As Jesus makes these claims and declaring, you know, I and the Father of one. I have come from the Father. He is in all ways fulfillment of the prophecies concerning the Messiah, but sin had blinded. Indeed, all men. We see even those these 11 men uh, have had the work of the Spirit, yet there's still a blindness. They're still seeing through a veil. There's still things they don't comprehend. And so when Jesus is talking about going away for a little while and then coming back, they cannot think of the greater events that will soon take place, the greatest event in all history, the event upon which time has been marked, the time before Christ and the time after Christ. That is a what is about to unfold. Indeed, it's this explanation from Apostle, well, the Apostle Paul many years later as the Holy Spirit has inspired him that we come to understand the things that are important. Well, then Jesus explains his meaning. If we go back to John 16, verse 19, now Jesus knew that the desire to ask him. He knew. He understood. You know, they're with him. He's here in their muffled conversations. They're whispering one to another. Their their curiosity, their confusion, their inquisitiveness, their longing for an answer. They're longing to understand. For they've made it completely clear. I mean, no doubt he even heard them that, they said, we do not understand, what are you saying? As it was whispered one to another. So then Jesus asked them, point blank, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. Jesus asked them why they are trying to figure this out by talking to one another. Has he not already told them that they ask anything of God, and He'll make it known to them. He's always made this, already made the promise of the Holy Spirit uh, that through prayer they can ask of the Father. He's going to reiterate this as He concludes this chapter, as we have it. But Jesus is their teacher. He's right there with them. You know, do we do we not see something of ourselves? They're over here having this conversation, trying to figure it out. And Jesus is right there, the one who's declared to them, "I am the way." The truth in the life. And yet they're trying to sort it out on their own. They, they should have said, Lord, we don't understand what you're saying. They've done it at other times. Well, so we don't understand the parable. Will you explain it to us? But remember, these men are bewildered. They're confused. Things are happening fast. Judas has gone out into the night with Jesus sending what you're about to do do quickly. It's all confusion. so Jesus mercifully, tenderly, compassionately asks him, are you inquiring amongst yourselves what I said a little while? He would help them. So Jesus answers them in verse 20 about this saying. He says, most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. So what Jesus actually provides here, the solution to their question of when or what this little while is, uh, solves the solution also that we see uh, the dilemma amongst the commentators, what he's talking about. The fact that there will be weeping and lamenting this first little while that he goes away, this little while which will result in their weeping and lamenting will result in the world's rejoicing. And then that their sorrow would be turned into joy. When he comes back, that's key to our understanding of the text. If Jesus is speaking of his ascension and return to the Father, then the sorrow and the lamenting does not make sense. And indeed, it's not what's recorded by Luke in the book of Acts. Nor does the world rejoice when Jesus ascends. They just move on. Once he's crucified, as far as they're concerned, the problems solve. They've lost their interest. Jesus must be teaching and even prophesying then about the response of those who love him and the opposite response of those who hate him when he is crucified and he dies. They lamented, they wept, confusion upon confusion, all these expectations, all this hope, all these things that they thought was coming to pass and were even told that they fled away from him. Such a degree of bewilderment. Meanwhile, the, the world is celebrating and rejoicing that finally they put one man to death that the people might live, as the high priest prophesied, not even knowing what he was saying. But then, the great joy that followed on Sunday morning, the resurrection, sorrow turned into joy upon the arrival of Sunday with Jesus' resurrection. The first event will take place in a little while, and then. After just a little while, the other one will follow as well. Does that not make the most sense of the words, a little while? Indeed, that's what happened. Jesus' arrest, crucifixion, and death resulted in overwhelming sorrow for Peter. We'll list their names. Just to remember, these these men are real. For Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus. Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. They were there. They were bewildered. They go to the garden. Jesus is arrested. They flee away. These men are scattered. They went into hiding. They are living in fear throughout the weekend. But then, oh, don't you love the but of the gospel? But then, the glorious pronouncement of resurrection morning, he is not here for he is risen. As the angels celebrated, first to the women and then to Peter and John as they arrived. Look with me at Luke 24, verse 36. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them. This is when they're up in the room. And he said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened. And supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do your doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But notice the language that Luke uses. But while they still not did not believe for joy. There's something about the joy that is They're so overwhelmed with joy at what they're seeing that they're not comprehending. It isn't fully sunk in, the reality of what's happening. They did not believe for joy, and they marveled. He said to them, have you any food here? And he goes on then, and he eats in their presence. You see, already the joy is beginning to unfold. There's, there's a, a bewilderment. I mean, nothing like this has ever happened in all the history of man, and nothing like this will ever happen again. This is the pinnacle event of history. This is a central reality of history. Christ came into the world to save sinners. He suffered and he died to satisfy God's judgments, and then he rose again. Joy upon joy, a joy that we celebrate day by day, and particularly on the Lord's Day, as we remember that resurrection morning. A little while, you will not see me. And then a little while, and you will see me again. His departure did result in sorrow and lamenting. But it was a pretty short while, if you consider, you know, Friday, events of Friday, over Saturday into Sunday morning, and then the transition, the the great and marvelous transition. God, given joy for the resurrection of the resurrected Jesus Christ, filled their hearts and compelled them to remain together then in obedience until the coming of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus ascended. He said, remain, continue in prayer, I will send the Spirit And then once they were filled with the Holy Spirit, what did they do? They went out with joy and preached Christ and Him crucified, the only hope of glory. This brings us then to the last point, which is a further explanation of Jesus' meaning in the text. Jesus' departure will result in victory and great joy. Again, as we go back to John 16, verse 20. You will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will be turned into joy. And then Jesus uses an illustration. Someone has called it a a non-narrative parable. In other words, it's a parable not telling a story. I, I like the term. It's a word picture. It's a word picture, something very familiar. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human has been born into the world. What a beautiful picture. There are many of you here hearing this sermon, and you say, yeah, there was sorrow. But I don't remember the pain. I just know I had it. And in that moment when the child is born, the sorrow goes away, and the joy is as though it erases the sorrow and the anguish and the pain. A great joy replaces it because a child is born. This was true for the apostles, as we've noted above. The church then grew as the Spirit transformed sinners into saints. And Luke's records that one key feature of the growing church was that they had gladness of heart and joy. Gladness of heart and joy. So the joy and the gladness, it lingers on. It is still something. Every time a sinner is converted, the church rejoices. The sinner rejoices. And based on Jesus' three parables about lost things discovered, there's celebration in the presence of the angels. God rejoices over his own salvation that he brings to the sons of Adam. Joy that has come from great suffering. The apostles. Were faithful because of the resurrection, because of the truth and the reality of who Christ was and what He had done. It animated that as they were full of the Spirit, they went forth, compelled, desiring to proclaim the joy that they had, the great things that God had done for them. And, and of course, the world's not thrilled about that. There's still, you know, this anguish and anger, as it were, uh, towards them. The apostles they were beaten for preaching Christ and Him crucified, the only hope of glory. Luke records so though that after that had happened, quoting, they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing, that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Verse twenty two, Jesus says, Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your joy will your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. So indeed, there's that great rejoicing in a little while on resurrection morning. There's a joy and rejoicing and that is endured to the church today. We too are recipients that the apostles were faithful and they recorded this message as the Holy Spirit has been faithful from generation to generation to go out and to raise up men and give gifts to men to preach the gospel and then giving those men as gifts to the church. And the church is grown as sinners hear this glorious good news and joy resounds on the earth as God delivers sinners from Shame, death, and bondage. Oh, great joy. These men experience sorrow. Unimaginable sorrow. It's hard to imagine what it must have been like for them. They've walked with Jesus three years. And then they see him run away. You know, he's healed people. He's spoken, and demons immediately obeyed. And yet, he yields and submits himself even when they ask him you know looking for Jesus he said i am and the the band that came to arrest him fell back under the declaration that the great i am god was before them making it very clear that his life was not taken from him he laid it down for his sheep he went obedient to the father to do the work and indeed great sorrow fell upon them It's very clear that I'm proclaiming to you an understanding of Jesus' words, the, the first position. It's events that were about to take place, but let us not rule out a later fulfillment. You will recall that as I've taught you about prophecies, there's often an immediate fulfillment. And then there's subsequent or one more fulfillment, depending on the nature of the prophecy. Or sometimes there's lesser fulfillments, and then there's a greater fulfillment. But not all prophecies are like that. For example, there are some prophecies that are made, and they have a one time and only fulfillment, as it was in Isaiah 7.14, when God, as a sign to King Ahaz, said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. One time. And only one time. And that prophecy was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. As he came into the world, as Isaiah will go ahead and prophesy two chapters later, that he will be called Wonderful Counsel, Mother God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. God come in the flesh. That happened one time. And a host of prophecies were fulfilled in that. But there's, there's prophecies even that are fulfilled in Christ that also had fulfillments In David's life, prophecies that were given to David and and through David, in the Psalms and in other places, certain things related to him, he was told that he would have a son to rule on his throne forever. And indeed, Solomon rules and there's a succession, but we see that the the Davidic line, there's a deterioration, and, and they're no longer ruling and reigning. But God maintains that line. And hundreds of years later, a virgin called Mary... Who's a descendant from David? Conceives a child by the Holy Spirit. And indeed, there's the full fulfillment of the prophecy of to David that he would have a son to rule when David's greater son, the one whom David called Lord, rules and reigns. And so it is. This prophecy of Jesus in John sixteen has an immediate and obvious fulfillment. That it relates also to the Church beginning with this men, and it seems to be what Jesus wants them to focus on, but the secondary fulfillment is throughout the apostolic age of the first century. they suffered. The more faithful they were, the more they suffered at the hands of the world. And indeed that suffering brought sorrow and affliction upon them. And yet we see even in the midst of it they had a joy. Thus the first fulfillment could not be erased. Uh, The joy of what Christ has accomplished could not be eradicated no uh, no matter how much the world oppressed them. And we know that even to this day, some 2,000 years of church history later. The church has undergone travail and anguish and pains for some 2,000 years. But the church has grown. New creatures in Christ are born. And indeed, as the gospel has gone out into new regions and realms, there's a sense that the church is expanding, but it's born afresh in, in another nation, in another place. Concerning the physical body, Jesus is gone for a little while. You say, but pastor, that's almost 2,000 years. Well, as we reckon time, that's a long time, right? Uh, That's really beyond our comprehension. What's 2,000 years? You know, I'm 60-something, and, you know, the idea of 100 years, 200 years, that seems a little bit hard to comprehend, but maybe I can wrap my head around it, but 2,000 years? What's what's that like? But my friends, what's 2,000 years in comparison to eternity? What's 10,000 years? If Jesus lingers yet... 8,000 more years before he comes again. Is that not a little while compared to eternity? Jesus is coming again. In a like manner as he was taken up, in a little while he will come again. As Paul writes in First Thessalonians, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. The authoritative voice of the king of all, the Lord and giver of life, as he shouts... And then as the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and we who remain under our lives shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and we shall always be with the Lord. Joy. Rejoice. And that's our blessed hope. This is the glorious promise of God. And we have every reason to believe it and have confidence that God will do this. Indeed, it's a fulfillment. Therefore, now you have sorrow. Uh, there's a fulfillment even in our lives. We have sorrow. But Jesus says, I will see you again. We've yet to see him with our eyes. We see him through the eye of faith. We will see him then with our eyes as he is. He says, but I will see you again. Your heart will rejoice and your joy. No one will take away from you. So there's a, a, a coming fulfillment of this. Paul goes on to say in the next verse, after I quit reading from 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, let us remember, I would say, let us remember what Paul wrote as he continued. He says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. My friends, do you not see the beauty of Christ? Do you not see the glorious nature of christ the uniqueness of christ that there is no other that the son of god left the realms of glory to come to earth from his incarnation onward he lived under the effects of the curse because of adam's sin he humbled himself so great was his love so great was his desire to fulfill the will of the father that our redeemer came and dwelt amongst the sons of men is there any other like him We heard earlier about uh, the first and second commandment, how the first commandment commends us not to have any other gods. How could we have any other god like unto this god? There is no other god like unto the god, our god, the father, the son, and the holy spirit, the triune god who have revealed himself to us in the son. For in him dwells the fullness of the godhead bodily. Indeed, it just follows that we must worship him as he has revealed is not Christ precious to your soul? Does not your hope cling to him? Is your faith not rooted in him? Do you long to see him? And indeed, as we suffer here and now, what sustains us is the promise Christ is coming? And as the scripture speaks of, escapes me right now, who writes it, I think it's Paul, but. In comparison to that eternal weight of glory, what is this momentary and light affliction? And again, it's it's a a comparison of standards. You're like, a little while. So it's 2,000 years in comparison to eternity. What's this suffering affliction? Even if we suffer unto death, what is that in comparison to the eternal weight of glory? That Christ, our precious Redeemer, has brought for us, has bought for us, has given to us. Oh, my friends, see the beauty of Christ. See the glorious nature of this one who is the Son of God, who stoops to be the Son of Man, to save the sons of Adam and to bring them home to glory. Oh, blessed be the name of our God, for so great a Savior, so great a salvation. What? What can we give unto our God? It's a free gift. And as we confess when we use the Heidelberg, Heidelberg no, it's the other one where that we keep we keep the law of God because we love God. Not because we want it, we can get salvation, but because he's freely given it. It is the desire of our joyful, loving hearts that we worship our king through our obedience. So when you look at this, as I've presented this two fulfillments, In this, there's the immediate, the obvious, I think there's greater fulfillment, but then there's extended fulfillment that we're still looking for the completion thereof. Which of these is the greater? We need to be careful how we answer. Which fulfillment is the greater of these two? I think that we must understand that it is the first. Because without Jesus' departure to the cross and the grave, there's no joy in his coming again. Without His sacrifice to redeem us from sin, there's, there's no celebration in He coming again. There will be those who have rejected Him. That in that time when He comes, so great will be their anguish and their sinfulness at the approach of such glorious, infinite light and perfect purity that they will say, Mountains fall on us and bury us. We cannot stand the presence of this God. Indeed, it is those events that are unfolding Uh, That these men are in the midst of, as they're being carried along by the will of God, is the greater fulfillment. In a little while, he's going to leave them. And then in a little while, he will come back. Even as he told the world, in a little while, I'm going to go away from you. You will see me no more. And then he says to the disciples, but then he says to them, you will see me. Because his ministry after the resurrection was very much focused to the church. As he equipped them to send them forth. As he prepared them for the coming of the Spirit. The cross was necessary for Christ to give birth to the church. No cross, no church. No cross, no crown. This is what Christ has accomplished. It was necessary for Jesus to undergo all this pain as the Lamb of God in order to redeem those that the Father had given to him before the foundation of the earth. So we conclude. Remember that Jesus began this evening in the upper room by, what did he do? What was the first act? He washed the disciples' feet. He cleansed their feet. But then we could say that he's gone on to cleanse them, their lives, their very being with his word. And although they've been given the Holy Spirit, they wouldn't be converted without him. The Holy Spirit is not yet working in them as He will, and thus their confusion, their, their lack of understanding. A little while Jesus would die, and for a little while they they could not see Him, and no doubt despair seized them. I'm sure your little children can't remember this, but I imagine you parents can remember when your little children, perhaps you were in that grocery store, or, uh, in a Walmart, some box store, and for a little moment you were out of their sight. This child who's just always being right there at your side. And, It is the panic that overcame the child. Mommy, Daddy, where'd you go? There's this terror because they cannot see you. Something much greater than that is about to overtake these men. The idea that they could not see him. This little while, then, would be the first opportunity that they would have to walk by faith and not by sight. They've been walking by sight all this time. It's not to say they're without faith. For their only union with Christ is by faith, the gift that the Holy Spirit gives them. But they're going to walk for a few hours, from Friday through Saturday until Sunday morning. They're going to have to walk by faith. And no doubt as they were together, they mulled over many things that Jesus said. Uh, the confusion of the, the things that he had taught them as they swirled around and they tried to make sense of it all. that little while was when their faith began to be exercised. You see, faith is similar to a muscle. It only grows and strengthens through use. The confusion of 16 through 18 will be stripped away by the resurrection. Sisters and brothers, this principle is true for us today. We must walk by faith. We walk by sight. We'll bring ourselves into all kinds of troubles. We're in the, the in between from the first coming until the second coming. And in this period, it is given to us we walk by faith. Day by day, we, we have the promises of God. He has spoken to us in His Word. And as the Holy Spirit gives us understanding, we walk based on what we know, not by what we can see. We walk by faith. And as we are exercised in faith, our faith grows. Because Jesus loves us, we must walk by faith through the valley of the shadow of death. It's not necessarily death. It's the valley of the shadow of death. He has given to us that we should eat a table that he has spread before us in the presence of our enemies. Our enemies are always around us, whether they be other men who hate God or the spiritual realm that is around us, that is against us in every way, shape, and form. Christ is with us. Our Good Shepherd has set a table for us. He provides for us, and he provides for us with an abundance. And so it is for nearly 2,000 years. This is all the church has known. Men of the world had reviled and persecuted God's holy ones on earth. They said all manner of evil against us falsely for Christ's sake. And so we have suffered in Jesus' name. If you read most any biography of godly men and women, you will find recorded there an account in various degrees, in various manners, Suffering, affliction, anguish, sorrow, hardship, loss, travail. And yet they have lived for Jesus in this world by faith for the glory of God. They've lived before a world that hates the Lord's anointed one as they cling to his promises. God the Father has wisely appointed that his dear children suffer in this world so that we learn to lean on Jesus and not on the arm of the flesh. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't trust in yourself. Don't talk amongst yourselves trying to, to figure it out other than, you know, talking to God, the elders, thing. but look to Christ. Do not lean on your understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. That's the promise in, verse, in the Proverbs chapter 3. In a very real sense, God is forming Christ in us through the process akin to childbirth. Anguish, suffering, affliction, but there is a cause for rejoicing along the way as we see uh, the victories that God has wrought in us. Isn't that a marvelous thing when you look and see some besetting sin defeated? Victory, triumph, as God has brought it about. And we, we rejoice that God has accomplished that. And so it is that James writes, my brethren, caught it all joy when you fall into various trials. What? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have it perf- its perfect work, that you may be perfect or mature, as the word should be translated, complete, lacking, Nothing. See, God has a purpose when He directs our paths through darkness. What we see in this passage is we're moving towards the cross. There's a purpose. There's intention. There's a plan that is unfolding. It is a perfect plan. Nothing is amiss. Nothing is out of place. All of it has been ordained and appointed by God to bring salvation to a people undeserving and unworthy. And so in our lives, God is at work. Even though our path is often through darkness, the Good Shepherd is with us. What's His promise? I will never leave you nor forsake you. And right before he ascended, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that our suffering, it's in our suffering, we experience the comfort of God. So that when others suffer, we may comfort them with that same comfort. But indeed our greatest comfort is in all of this is Jesus has redeemed us from the worst of afflictions, the wrath of God, So though we were dead, now we live, and we live forever and long for the coming. In a little while, we shall see him. And whatever we have suffered here below will vanish, and we will know joy, unlimited, unmeasurable, forevermore. Amen? Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we bless you and praise you for these promises, these rich and precious promises. We thank you for opening our eyes to see them and to understand them. We thank you, Lord, that... The disciples were confused, and it required an explanation that we can benefit from it even now, these many years later. Lord, help us, that as you have given us the Spirit to walk by faith in the strength of the indwelling Spirit, knowing that nothing in our lives is in vain, that you are at work, that we would mature, that our faith would grow. Lord, give us eyes to look forward to the coming of Christ. Indeed, we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' name. Amen. Take your handles and turn to number 128.